0: Heavenly Father, God, we believe that you are good, you, that, that you are our only hope and our only salvation. God, we believe that you alone are worthy of praise. And so, God, we're here gathered together. God, we're here to worship you and to hear from you through your words. God, I pray for this time right now that, that you would do a work in all of our hearts, that we would listen well to what your spirit would say to us through the word. God, God I'm asking you help me to teach in a way that's a demonstration of your power and not my own strength. God, I pray this would be about you today and nothing else. And God, I I pray for all of us that we would love you more and know you better because we've been here today. And I pray that all in Jesus' name, amen. All right, you may be seated. Well, everyone, we are going to be continuing in the book of Philippians, but before I jump into that, I I do want to say a few things. Um, One of those things is, uh, if you're visiting today, I would love to get a chance to meet you after the service uh, down front. I'll I'll be somewhere around here. You'll see me with a mask on. Um, The other things I want to let you know is, um, Josh, if you see Josh today run out of the service, uh, his wife is due like any second. I it's not any second. I don't know when. She's due soon, man. So if he gets a phone call and takes off, yeah, we're pretty pumped about that. So there's a baby coming and sleep goes goodbye forever. Uh, so pray for him and his wife this week, whenever that second baby is coming, that, um, that it'll go well and that one day they'll get sleep again. Uh, I do want to let you guys know about a few things that are going on. This is our last week for signing up for small groups. Those tables are in the back and in the foyer there. And then one thing I do want to really let you know about uh, we really want to do a better job of communicating with everyone. On September 13th, it's a Sunday night at 5.30 p.m., we're going to have a church family meeting here in the sanctuary where for people who are church members who are, or who are engaging in this church, we want to let you know what's going on with, with our budget and future next steps for mission, where we think we're headed as a church for reaching people in this area. Um, we want to talk about some of those things uh, September 13th at 5.30. You'll be talking hear me talk about that. If you can't come because you're in the vulnerable population, we'll be sending a Zoom link out to our church members so that you can watch it via Zoom, via Zoom, however you're supposed to say that. Uh, that's, gonna, that's an important thing where I'm going to be sharing some direction for the next year for us. So I'd love for as many of you as possible to kind of join us in that. So those are all my announcements. Uh, I don't really like making announcements. I don't know if anyone likes that. It's that part of getting up here that makes me feel like, uh, it's like a boring classroom moment. I don't want to do that anymore. So here's what we're doing. We're going to jump right into the passage in Philippians. This is our, um, we're, we've been in Philippians for about six months now. Um, total when you add it all together. And I've, I've really been enjoying the book of Philippians. I mean, you've, you've got this book written by the Apostle Paul. He's in prison, and he's writing to a church that's suffering persecution, that's fighting within, and he's talking about how we can rejoice in the Lord no matter the circumstances and how the gospel of Jesus enables us to be unified and to not be, be splintered and fractured, which is a phenomenal message for us in the light of events of the last year. Right? I and mean, when you think about the timing of this, it's, it's been phenomenal. And I trust God in all of that stuff. Before we get into Philippians chapter 3, I, I want to share a little bit um, of what goes on in my heart and mind as I was reading these verses we're looking at today. Um, it, it was challenging for me. Let me just be honest. I grew up in the church. I actually grew up in this church. Uh, I grew up in a Christian home. I heard the Bible all the time. I mean, my parents were of... Of the generation where you were at church every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, every Wednesday night, we also had this thing on Tuesday called EE. Any church people remember that thing? All right, for all for all the people who've been in church their whole life, that meant you were at church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night. Um, and listen, I grew up in it. I was in the church all the time, and there were tremendous benefits for my life being growing up in the church and being engaged in it. I I, I knew the Bible. I I learned so much. I knew the gospel. I got to watch people up close and personal sacrifice for the kingdom of God. I watched them joyfully give and spend their time and energy and money to see people reached for the cause of Jesus. I got to watch that firsthand growing up in the church. There were tremendous benefits for me, but there was also something else happened in the middle of those benefits that that we know this if if you've been in the church. Our hearts are kind of twisty and mess with you. They, they like to trick you and deceive you. And your heart will take something really, really good and can twist it, and it can end up being a bad thing for you. You've got to be aware of the snares in your own heart. And, and growing up in the church, one of the things that happened for me was, yeah, I got to see a whole lot of things, but I also had this thing happen that I began to be used to the gospel. Uh, God became familiar. I became almost... Too casual, not casual like a father son relationship, casual like um, the way you just treat a, a dog in your house, like it's there and it's good, but you, you don't really care. Well, maybe y'all care too. I don't know what your dogs are. Uh, the way my dad treated dogs um, was it's there, but he needs to be quiet and not wake me up, or I'm going to get after him. Um, it, it's one of those things where it, church was just a convenience, it was just a thing you did. Yeah, God existed. Yeah, I knew the gospel was good news. Um, and it was as a result, many of us who grew up in church, you probably have a very similar story. That You came to church all the time. And when you were four or five, you probably played a prayer. And then when you were 13, you probably rededicated your life to Jesus, right? Um, and then, then you graduated and went off to college and who knows what happened. And, and that is the normal story that I think we hear in churches in the South all over the place, that um, we, we pray a prayer when we're five, we rededicate when we're 13, we go to college, leave the church, never come back until we start having kids, and then we say, oh, no, I want to raise my kids in church, so now we come to church because we want to raise our kids in church. And, and the Christianity becomes this routine thing all the time. And listen, my story was heading down that path. I prayed a prayer when I was five. I don't even remember it but there was a a shift that happened in me, and here was the shift that happened. When I hit 13, I had that exact thing. I was in ninth grade, but it wasn't just a rededication of my life. There was an explosion that happened in my life. It it wasn't just, hey, I needed to re-pray a prayer. I actually felt like God was chasing me down, right? I, I felt like he was pursuing me. I felt like everything was wrong. Like, I was like, listen, I know this the gospel, I know the Bible, I'm not even that bad of a kid, but all I knew is I, I knew about a Savior, but I actually needed a Savior. I didn't need just to know about it, I needed to experience Him and know Him. So, when I was at the end of my ninth grade year, man, I, I got saved, and it literally shifted my entire life. Like it, was, it was a radical experience for me. Uh, and and yeah, I had struggles that were happening, but, but here's what began to happen. I began to grow very quickly, and by the time I went off to college, I, I just felt God called me to the ministry, so I started getting after, um, going to, I went to a Bible college, So I was at this college, we heard the Bible all the time, I was in Bible classes, and I was growing like crazy. It, it was explosive to me. I mean, I remember... I remember getting up in college and reading my Bible and reading things for the first time that I had never heard in my life. I remember reading the Gospels and seeing who Jesus was and just being in awe, like just in awe of the things that he said. I mean, he did not fit in the flannel graph stories that I had heard my whole life. Like, y- y'all know flannel graph, all my church people? There we go. Good. If you don't know flannel graph, you can you Google it right now. It's like a felt. Okay, I don't want to get into that. Anyways, it just didn't fit into the boxy form of Jesus that maybe I was hearing other things and missing it, but I hadn't seen it for myself. And, and Jesus began to blow my mind. The way he dealt with the religious, the way he dealt with really sinful, wicked, broken people, like he hung out with these people, and then the religious he got in a fight with. And I began to realize, man, this Jesus that I trust in, I don't know him as well as I think I do. And I like the version of Jesus that I'm actually reading in the Bible. And I'm not sure what to do with the version of Jesus I'm encountering in the church. Because they don't seem to line up. The version of the Jesus that I encounter in the church, he seems to hate sinners and love religious people. But the version of Jesus that I read in the Bible, he fights religious people and he loves really broken people. That felt like really good news to me because no matter how much I tried to polish up the outside, man, that, that inside was always there lurking. The things that I would think, the things that I would want. The things that I wanted to do if no one was looking and no one would know. Maybe the things I did do that no one knew. Yeah, listen, that the version that I was learning in churches and at Bible college really worked really well on the outside, but on the inside, something was off. I learned how to perform. I learned how to be good. But all I know is the more I read that Bible, the more I met this Jesus that was radical and awesome, that flipped tables in the temple, and he didn't fit in with what I saw at church. He just didn't. Listen, and everything in me wanted to fight against this. I saw this radical Savior, and, I, and everything. I felt things like, man, don't go crazy on this, Fios. Don't be a lunatic, right? Be balanced, uh, and I would feel this pull it was almost like this tractor beam that would just suck me to apathy and mediocrity. Right? I, I just I just I don't I don't want to flip tables. I I don't want to live life like that. It would be a whole lot easier if Jesus was just something I did on Sunday that kept my family and my life clean and I could just go about my daily life. But but I couldn't shake it, you guys. I, I could not shake who he was and what I saw in the Bible. It, it it was a really big deal to me. I mean, it was it was massive to me that Jesus was huge. And so I, I began to spend my summers, even after college, I worked at a, a Christian summer camp for a year. I helped with a church plant. And then, then I got wrecked in that church plant, went and worked at a, I went to seminary for three years and my brain exploded, I went to Australia to work as a missionary for a year. And the more I did this, the more I fell in love with the radical Jesus of the Bible, like the real and true Jesus. I mean, I loved him. Like, I totally loved him. And it felt like my heart was on fire all the time. But then there were these moments, right? These moments that that fire felt like it dwindled. That, that I would feel this, this dryness come on, almost this boredom. Am I allowed to say that? I, I felt bored with Jesus. I felt bored with the church. I felt bored with the Bible. I felt exhausted by it all. Like I just wanted to get away from it. And so I would go and I'd grab these pastors or missionaries that I was working with or I'd grab these professors. And I've shared this with you before. And I'd say, hey, I don't know what's going on. Like I, I used to, Feel like I was really on fire for Jesus. Even like three months ago, I was on fire for Jesus, but it's it's dying. And going to church doesn't help because I feel like I was on fire, and the people around me seem like they could care less. So I would go to meet with these pastors, seminary professors, missionaries, and that. I mean, they were encouraging a young radical Faez who wants to just really get after Jesus. And every time that fire would die, it would be this passionate, like, it has to change, right? Um, And they were trying to to balance me out and say, listen, Fias, the walk with Jesus is not all mountaintops and fires. It's not all burning bushes and Mount Sinai. Some of it is this, you just put the left foot in front of the right foot. It's the long, slow journey. It's not all fun. Some of it's hard. You're not going to get up every morning and have the heavens parted and light shine down on your Bible while you're reading it, and you're going to be skipping through the day because your time with God was so phenomenal. That's not, that's not the way this works. Um, they tried to give illustrations of marriage, but I was still single. Did not understand that at all. That was like, what do you mean you don't, you're not skipping, holding hands with your wife for 20 years? What do you mean you fight? What do you mean there's dry times? What do you mean you have to keep going on dates? Like, I didn't get all that. Um, I do now. Um, but but, but here was the problem. Their advice was good, but then it would take this turn. And I've shared this with you all before. They would say this phrase to me. Listen, Fize, it, it's duty before delight. You just need to obey Jesus, and some point your heart will follow. And I remember hearing that then, and I hear it now, and I remember thinking, is that true? Is it true that I don't have to want Jesus? I just have to obey Jesus, and if I keep obeying him long enough, eventually my heart will catch up? Is that the way this works? Is the way the Christian life supposed to work that it is literally obedience and then the heart follows? Is that the way this whole thing works? That God is waiting and if I will pursue, then that will cause desire? Gotta be honest. Um, I'm gonna play my hand now. I reject that. I, I wholeheartedly reject it. I saw people around me that what happened as they heard that lie, that they believed that they had to pursue and eventually desire would follow. They would pursue and they would pursue and they would obey and they would obey and their hearts would never get warmed or changed by the person of Jesus, by his good news. They would never be on fire for God and they would say, well, I'm just pursuing. They would say, I don't have to love God. My love equals obedience. So since I obey, whether I like him or not, whether my heart ever burns with passion for him. It doesn't matter because I'm obeying. You experience that in church? It's actually almost weird to hear it in a church that we would say, it's not good enough for you to obey. You've got to love him, like passionately love. You have to have desire for him. When I talk like that, it makes us uncomfortable because it doesn't feel like it actually fits in with the church. We've, we've lowered the bar in churches. We've lowered the bar where if I can just get you to wake up five minutes early and read our daily bread, I feel like we've killed it. If I can get you to read a devotional, if I can just get you to, I don't care if you actually your heart burns for Jesus, if I can actually get you to just obey, then we win. And, and I gotta be honest with you. The passage we're looking at today. I think it beats that idea down. I mean, it just beats it savagely with a stick, <laughs> okay? I mean, it's, Paul is not nice. He doesn't understand any of this idea. Not, there's not even a framework for him in Christianity of you getting up and obeying God and never loving him. It is straight passion. Let me, let me show you what he says. We're going to review last week. Look at Philippians chapter 3 verse 8. And remember, here's the question that I, that I'm eventually going to be getting to. Is it true that pursuit does not cause desire? Is desire the thing that's supposed to cause pursuit? Is that how this works? Philippians chapter 3, look at verse 8. Here's this is what we were looking at last week. Look at how Paul talks about this. He says, "Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord." Everything, everything is like a, it, it, it costs him if it doesn't help him get to know Jesus. You see the desire there, the longing, the treasure? For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. That word is scubala. In other words, it's all crap. Another shocking word, but Paul is actually a little bit more graphing that. Why does everything else seem like just trash to Paul? In order that I may gain Christ. Do you see any duty or obligation in that? Or do you see passion and desire and hunger? Verse 9, And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own. This is the gospel that comes from the law. I, I, I want to be found, I want to know him, I want to be found in him, not by my own effort, not my own righteousness, not my own goodness, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. In other words, I'm I'm wanting him to do a work to make me clean. I don't clean myself. Verse 10. Why? That I may know him. That I may experience him. That's the idea here. And the power of his resurrection. And may share in sufferings. Becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Listen, we looked at this last week, but here's what I want you to see in this. It is just straight passion for Paul. 100% aggressive hunger. All he wants is Jesus, and he's going to bend and leverage everything. Everything. Every paycheck. Every moment. Every moment of suffering. Every conversation. He's using all of it to get to know Jesus. Guys, it's extreme, right? Let me ask this question, because here's the question I'm asking Is that type of passion just for a few elite Christians? Like, maybe that's only for pastors and apostles right? You've got, you got Paul, Peter, James, John, and the other guys, whoever they are. I, we never remember their name, right? You've got these few elite pastors like Chuck Swindoll and John MacArthur and John Piper, whoever else you listen to on podcast or the radio. Like, you've got the few elites in history who've had a passion like that. That's for missionaries and pastors and the few great ones. They have passion like that, but the rest of us, come on, man. Isn't that just for extreme Christianity? But, but what if? What if that's normal, basic Christianity? What if basic Christianity is passionate love for Jesus, not impassionate obedience? What then? What, what does that mean? about the way we do life and the way we do church. What if the reality is is that when people first get saved, right, you've seen this, they get saved and they are on fire for Jesus. What if they're getting basic Christianity right and the dead church trains them to not be passionate for him? Listen, when I read this right here, All I know is my heart burns that we would be a people that have passion for Jesus like this, and we would tolerate nothing less in our own hearts. We would long for it. And and so let me show you what that passion turned into for Paul. Look at verse 12. This is our our new verse. I want you to see how his desire for God led to this crazy, passionate pursuit of God. Verse 12. He says this, not that I have already obtained this. Listen, I'm not already there, or I'm already perfect. I'm, listen, I know it sounds phenomenal. Here I am, like, I just love Jesus. I love everything about Jesus. I hate everything else. I only want Jesus. And you're like, dude, Paul, he's there, man. The apostle Paul has arrived. He's perfect. And he said, no, 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 don't, don't hear that I'm perfect. I don't want you to think I've already gotten there. Here's what he says. He says, I press on to make it my own. Like you said, that phrase, press on, it's the idea of chasing something down. Some, some Greek words, it's the idea of persecuting or running someone out of town. You get mad at someone, you go after that person, you run them out of town. In the positive thing, it's, it's like just the idea of running after or chasing something down. I, the idea that comes into my head, um, I don't know if you've ever watched any of those nature shows where you've got a lion, and it's like stalking a gazelle. Y'all ever seen this? I don't know why so I say, like anyone has never not seen that on TV. They're all over the place, but you've got these lions and they're crouching and there's always a story like they're going to starve to death. They haven't eaten in weeks. They're so hungry. If they don't get this meal, it, it, we don't know how the tribe is going to last. They could all be wiped out because they're going to starve to death. And you see these lions and they're, they're crouching and every muscle is like Tense and tight and they're they're looking and when they find the gazelle they want right they go and when they go It's like, I mean, it's like a laser beam. They're locked onto that gazelle. And it doesn't matter how much that gazelle zigs and zags. And this is going to be a sad story for those of you who don't know how this ends. No matter how much it zigs and zags, no matter how many stumps are in the way, no matter how many logs they've got to jump in or how many potholes are in the ground, it doesn't matter. When they hawk on on that one gazelle, they are not stopping until they get it or it gets away. It's this laser-like focus of hunger and desire and chasing with all of its effort. When he says, I press on to make it my own, you need to think of that. You need to think of being a hungry lion that's like, listen, I got to get Jesus. I got to get more and more of Jesus. He's what I want. Listen, that's how Paul pursued Jesus. He said, listen, I'm not there. I don't have Jesus yet. Not all of them. Not in fullness. I want more. And I'm like a lion hawked in and I'm hungry. I mean, I'm talking crazy hungry. And I'm getting it. I almost wanted to sing The Eye of the Tiger or however that song goes. And now I just wrecked it. Great. Anyways, right? It's like, you've got this thing, like I'm getting after it, man. Like I, I want Jesus and I want Jesus alone. And it doesn't matter what gets in my way and what things I have to zigzag around. Doesn't matter what hurdles are in the way. I'm going after Jesus with everything in me. That desire turns into a type of pursuit that does not fit in with the religious form of Christianity that is a cheap imitation. Can can we not be people who are half-hearted about Jesus and pursue out of obligation? Can we be a people that press on like we're starving to death and he's our only meal that will satisfy? Man, I love it. (laughs) I love it. Chase him like you're going to starve to death spiritually if you don't catch him and eat. Verse 13. Uh, well, let me just say this. I, I want to keep reading verse 12. I left an important part. Look, look at why he says he does this in verse, or verse 12. He says, because Christ, he says, but I press on to make up my own. Why? Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Listen, here's why I get after Jesus. Because he got after me. He said, "He came down and he died on a cross for me, and he came back to life three days later." Like, think of that pursuit and that love that he had for me. The reason I get after Jesus is because he he aggressively came after me. First John chapter four verse nineteen says this: "says We love because he first loved us." Listen, you don't just you don't get after Jesus out of duty and obligation. You get after Jesus because he loved you in a radical, ridiculous way. He willingly, on purpose, on purpose. Listen, I want you to hear this. He willingly, on purpose, came and looked at every single one of us. He looked at all my stubbornness and all the stupid moments that I've ever had and I will continue to have. He looked at the brokenness of my heart and the bent of rebellion in my heart. He will get all the filthy things in me, and he said, I want him. I want her. And I'm not going to just toss my pocket change to get him or her. I'm personally at great cost to myself because I love that person. I want them. I want them as my son. I want them as my daughter. I want to clean them and make them my own. He passionately pursued us all the way to the point of death on a cross. Man, that type of passionate pursuit does not cause eh in us. That type of passionate pursuit from Jesus causes a reciprocating passionate pursuit of Jesus. That's what it does, you guys. When you realize that he loves you and gets after you, it makes you want to love him and get after him. That's that That's how this stuff works. We love him because he first all Look at verse 13, because there's more. I, w- I want you to see all this desire, all this action. Verse 13, he says this, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do. He's coming back to this. I don't think I've gotten there. I don't have it all yet. I do this one thing. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. that that word straining, it's, it's, the, it's the word you would use if, when you're pushing as hard as you can and it feels like your muscle's about to pop. It's, it's the language you would use when you watch sprinters running a race and they get to the line and what do they do at that finish line? They lean, right? Like They're leaning hard. Like it's, Everything's out. I, I, don't, I don't have the belly to do this right. Uh, I shouldn't do that. Uh, they're leaning. They want to cross that line because it's not enough to finish the race. You want to win the race. You want a fastest time, and every millisecond matters. That's why you get to that end of that race. You go as hard as you can. You lean as far forward as you can because you want to win the race. He said, man, I'm I'm pursuing Jesus with strain and effort, like every fiber of my being. Guys, these words are passionate pursuit. He says this interesting thing. Because there's a struggle with straining. The struggle for straining is past. Because I forget. If I'm looking back, if I'm driving life, looking in the rearview mirror, I'm going to get in an accident. Right, he's like, if I keep looking back, I can't strain forward. I can't lean for Jesus if I'm living in the past. Listen, as I, oops, messed up there. As I think about what it means for us to lean into Jesus, and I think about the things that we dwell on in the past, here, here's a couple ideas that I want to share with you that can get you problems with the past. One of the things when you when you rest on past success or experience, you ever met this person? This is the person who, they loved Jesus like 10 years ago. (laughs) There was just one time they had a moment with Jesus at camp, and they talk about it all the time. They haven't had a moment with Jesus in the years since then, or maybe even decades. But their entire Christian life is about past experience and past success. I remember what I did then. I remember what I experienced then, and and here's what happens. Somehow these past experiences cause a coasting today. I don't have to worry about it. I don't have to strain. I don't have to strive for Jesus because I had that experience that one time. Right? Sometimes we can have these past experiences that seem good, and for some reason our hearts will do this thing, I guess that's my, is that my mouth? I'm going to push it away. For some reason, our hearts will do this thing that we will just, we'll stop pursuing and we will rest on past success. Listen, if you do that, you need to hear me. It will kill your drive for Jesus. You can't live life based on the past. Passionate pursuit of Jesus takes the past experiences and it causes a greater hunger for more experiences today and tomorrow. And that would never work for my wife. Can I just be honest with you? If I told my wife, you remember that time we had a great date? I'm really glad we don't have to do that again. But that, guys, that's a little pro tip in marriage for you. Don't ever, 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 I don't have enough evers to tell you. Don't ever, ever do that. You don't sit there and say, man, it was great to go on the honeymoon together. Man, I'm really glad we had a honeymoon. It was awesome. That week together, wherever you're at on the cruise, it was just phenomenal. But now that we're back in the everyday life, I can't wait 20 years from now to talk about that honeymoon. Listen, I promise you, your wife will slap you upside the head. And if she doesn't, you guys got serious issues, right? Like that's that's not how we do relationship. Like when I met my wife and I asked her on the first date, there was a second date. Do you know why? Because the first date was so good, I wanted another one. And after the second date, do you know what I did? It was so good, I wanted a third date. And after the third date, little spoiler alert, there was a fourth date and a fifth date. And eventually there was marriage. Like, like it, it, the, the experience caused me to hunger more for her. There's something wrong with an experience that makes you full and satisfied and never want any more again. That's passionless. That is not Christianity. So listen, if if you're living in an experience a year ago, or 10 years ago, or 50 years ago, listen, you need to get after Jesus today, not last year. We we can't be a church that lives in the past. Yes, Jesus was in the past, but it's about today and tomorrow as well, not then. That's great, we want to celebrate it, but don't be paralyzed by it. But sometimes there's more things that happen for us. It's not just past successes, ever felt paralyzed by past failures, past sin? Like for some of you here, I'm sitting here talking about, man, I remember all those past successes, but you're sitting there saying, that's not why it's hard for me to get after Jesus. Imagine Paul. It wasn't that Paul was paralyzed by past success. Imagine for the dude Paul that killed Christians, persecuted the church, right? Think about that dude. What do you think would paralyze him for pursuing Jesus? Jesus, I don't know, man. You remember how I was there when they killed Stephen? I don't know if you can use me. I don't know if you want to use me. I've done some really, really bad things. I mean, I've murdered people. And I liked it. That's Paul's story. Listen, I want to remind you of the gospel. I don't know what your past is. I don't know what you did last week, last month, last night. I don't know what your past is filled with, but you need to hear something. Jesus is not surprised by your past. He knows your past. He knows your future, and he still chose to die for you joyfully. It made him happy to suffer greatly despite your past to get you as his own. Listen, don't be paralyzed by your past. Don't let those sins, you take it to Jesus. That's why he died on the cross and he paid the price for every last drop of it. Man, you let that pass, you take it to Jesus and say, listen, I know you knew this and I know you died for it and you love me anyways and so I'm coming at you, right? Like if you've ever experienced in, this in relationship where you've messed up and you've messed up big and you've had to go to that person and say, listen, I, I blew it and they've given you forgiveness. You ever tasted that? Like the radical type of forgiveness. I think of the marriage counseling sessions that I've gotten to be in where I've sat down with couples and they're having a conversation where this spouse is sharing about an affair or sharing what they did online, these awful things. And to see that moment, it's brutal. As they work through that, when that other spouse actually gives forgiveness, now, there's a freedom that happens there with the person. that They're like, I have no idea why you're forgiving me of like this. And it's all on the table. And then there's this freedom that happens. that It doesn't matter what that person has done in the past, what they looked on the end line. They're actually getting for real forgiveness from their spouse. And they get a freedom to love that spouse because they're known by them in a way they've never been known before. And they're accepted. Right? Like that moment where the deepest part of you that is the most broken someone sees it and they don't walk away and they don't reject you, that's a moment of love that, that few of us ever get to taste. And Jesus offers that to all of us. Don't let your past sin keep you from getting after Jesus. Your past sin didn't keep him from getting after you. He doesn't want it to be between you. That's why he died on the cross. Listen, I, I love the passion that's going on here with Paul and the pursuit. I mean, the ridiculous pursuit that has happened, that is fueled by passion for Jesus. So as you read all that, I still haven't answered the, the one question I said I was going to a- answer. Like, what is it about Paul that this, this switch got flipped in him? where he, he heard the stories of Jesus, but he met Jesus and it radically changed him. What is it? Like some of you are hearing this and you're saying, listen, like I hear like Paul, that's awesome that Paul got after it. But man, compared to Paul, my desire for Jesus like a zero or a, even worse, like a negative, whatever Paul is, I'm a negative Paul, okay? Like when I look at how Paul longs for Jesus, I mean, I'm nowhere near that. I'm, I'm the complete opposite. Or or maybe for some of you, the thing that's happening in your heart is you're saying, Man, I mean, I've got like this little flicker of desire for Jesus. Like it's small and it's weak. And I promise you, if the gust of wind is too big, it's going out. I don't don't feel strong in passion. I feel weak and faint. What am I supposed to do? Like you're telling me I've got to have passion. Am I just supposed to lay here and say, well, Jesus, I don't want you. So I'm just going to wait until you do something in my heart. And then when you show up, boom, then when that happens, I'll get after you. But until it. I'm just going to wait. Is that what I'm supposed to do? Listen, I I started chewing on these passages. I want to go to two passages to to talk about this. I want you to follow with me. The train of thought hopefully isn't too complicated, but I want you to see a couple things here that I think um, choke out our passion for Jesus and one of the things that's essential for us to have passion and hunger for Jesus, okay? So let me show that to you quickly um, as we're wrapping up here. Matthew chapter 13, Jesus is telling a parable. He told these stories that, intended to tell us things that were how the spiritual world worked. It was not intended to make it easier to understand. It was actually intended to hide it. That's a whole other sermon series. But in Matthew chapter 13, he tells this story, right? Uh, Kind of a boring story, if I'm honest. He's like, there's a farmer. He goes out. He's got a whole bunch of seed. And he decides he wants to throw his seed on his field. So he starts throwing his seed. And some seed lands on the sidewalk. The birds come and snap it up. Some seed lands out where there's a bunch of rocks. And they grow up and they start to sprout, but then the sun comes and they die because the, sho- the soil was too shallow. Some ended up in the grass and in the weeds, and they tried to grow, but the weeds just choked it out. But, but some of the seed landed in the, in the fertile soil, the one that's been tilled and prepared. Now that, that field, that seed grew up, and it, it produced fruit and tons of fruit, like 30, 60, 90, hundreds and hundreds of fruit. And then he says, if you got ears to hear, go figure it out. <laughs> Like oh what you imagine that sermon right? I get up and I got a story about it, about mowing my grass. You can figure it out. Great. And then we have the invitation. You're all like what in? Like hey, can, and that's exactly what the disciples are like hey Jesus. Like I, I know you're really smart and everything and you're good at teaching, but I have. I mean what was that? Then he explains it to them. Matthew chapter thirteen verse eighteen. He says this after they've asked him. He says this. Hear then the parable of the sower. And notice here he says. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it. In other words, you hear the word and it's like, I don't, listen, I don't get it. Not I don't feel it, I don't get it. It's like this, uh, all right, whatever, that was weird. Kind of like that kind of thing. If you were in middle school, that's how you would say it. Um, Does not understand it. Here's what it says. The evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. Right, listen, so if you hear the word and you're in church all the time and it's just bounce, 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 and you're never getting it, you should be freaked out. Because that seed is coming and it's getting taken away, and you you need to get it. Because if you don't get it, it's going to be big big time trouble for you when it comes to the end. Verse 20. As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears it and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself. There's this shallowness. Like I like Jesus. I like the gospel. I like the Bible. As long as it makes my family better and my life easier and my bank account bigger. But endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. This is the person. I like Jesus and this is all great. I may understand someone. I get really excited about it. But when it costs me something. When Jesus has the audacity to tell me how to live my life and spend my money and what I should feel about things, listen to that. I'm out. Verse 22, As For what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, choke the word out. And then it becomes unfruitful. This is the person that, man, I I like all that stuff, but I'm really busy. I got got work and family and t-ball and soccer and softball, and I've got my own hobby, and I've got a boat, and I've got whatever five million thing, I don't know. I I don't know what else. It's, It's all the cares of the world. It's the deceitfulness of riches and comfort chokes it out. There's some soil sown on the good soil. This is the one who hears the word and, look at this, understands it. Remember the first one? The sidewalk seed, it landed on the sidewalk and they, they heard it and did not understand it. But the second one, they they hear it and they understand it, not just mentally. There's something they they grasp the significance of this. It it, it doesn't just go from their head. It goes head and heart and desire just saying, no, that's true and that's good and that's valuable. Like I'm seeing it and I'm understanding the greatness of God and the goodness of his message. This person indeed bears fruit and yields and cases a hundredfold, another 60, another 30. Like, listen, you want to know how this explodes? You hear the word and, and something clicks in your head so that you understand it. So how do I understand it? I mean, is that just, do I need to have better books? I need to have a pastor explain it to me? Is the church supposed to help me understand this? Well, Paul answers that question. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says this. Now, we have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. So listen, when you get saved, it's it's not that you just got more understanding. It's the Spirit. God's Spirit does a work in you that helps you understand what God says and what he's given you. That's what causes this. Verse 13, and we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. There's this Holy Spirit work inside of you that helps you see the value of Jesus and the goodness of His Word. Verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him. He doesn't understand it. See the connection there between that and Matthew chapter 13? Listen, you want to be a person that sees the value of Jesus and understands his word. What you need is you need the Spirit to do a work in you. Now, that is not a fun answer. Here's what I basically just told you you want to be passionate for Jesus, you need God to do a work in your heart because you can't manufacture it. You you can't. You you cannot manufacture desire. But I got to be honest. I need the spirit to help. When I think through all this stuff, here's the way I would say it. Um, here's the illustration I give. If, if a 20-year-old shows up in my office and he or she has fallen in love with a complete loser, I'm talking like a compute, complete loser, it is clear that that dude is going to beat this woman for the rest of her life or that woman is going to be an awful, they're gonna, she's going to drag this dude down. If that's clear, and there are losers out there, am I allowed to say that? Like, But they keep saying, but I love him, but I love her. Do you know what I'm going to tell them what every sane parent would tell their son or daughter? Tell your heart it's stupid, tell it no. Because my heart does not always know what's best for me. Right if a, if someone who's married comes in and says listen I've fallen in love with the person at the grocery store or my co-worker and I'm going to leave my spouse and my kids for love cuz my heart wants it Your heart is stupid and it's leading you down a bad path tell your heart no And when your heart tells you that Jesus isn't worth it Can I be honest Our hearts are stupid You tell it, yes, he is. And you may not be able to change your heart, but he can. And so what you do is say, Jesus, my heart is dry and dead and cold, and I'm begging you to do a work in me. I'm not going to coast. I'm not going to settle. I'm not going to sit here and say it's okay for me to be dry. I'm going to beg you to do a work that only you can do. And then I'm going to take a step by faith and say, I don't feel like it. I don't want to. But your word says that it's your spirit giving me understanding of the word. So I'm going to get in the word and beg you to do a work. And if you don't do a work, fine. Guess what? I'm doing it again tomorrow until you make my heart burn. And I will not be satisfied. I will not be satisfied. I'm going to strain and reach until I get more and more of you. There's a difference between that and saying, it's my duty, I get up and read. And I'm good, it doesn't matter if he ever meets me. I read, so he should be great, that equals love. That does not equal love. It's passionate pursuit that is completely dependent on the work of Jesus in your heart. So what am I calling you to do today? I'm calling you to passionately beg for Jesus to do a work in your heart that makes you want him more than anything else in the world. And you keep getting after him over and over and over again. Let me give one last illustration of how that works as I wrap up. Um, And I've used this before, but it's the best illustration I can think of when it comes to pursuing Jesus. Uh, If you try to go sailing, if you get in a boat, and I've said I'm not a professional sailor. I've been on a sailboat once. Phenomenal experience. It was sails and wind. It was great. Um, But here's what I know. Uh, You can put me on a boat with zero wind and all the sails and experience in the world, and I'm probably not going anywhere. Right? Like, I can put the sail up. There's no wind. I'm just floating. Got to be honest. We're just drifting with the current. It might move a little, but I'm not really going. What I need is I put that sail up and I need the wind to fill the sails and that will drive the boat. If the wind is howling and I have the sails down, I'm probably not going very far. I gotta have the wind and I have to put the sails up. And here's what it looks like to follow Jesus passionately. You put the sails up by spending time in the Lord and begging him to work, but unless he brings the wind, it won't cause your heart to burn for him. You put that sail up and you beg him to put the wind in it. You beg him to give you the spirit. You beg him to change your heart. That is the essence of passionate Christianity. So let me guide us in a time of response. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? I want you to ask yourself, are you a passionate lover of Jesus? Or are you just religious? Are you a church person? Listen, if you don't passionately want him, if all you've done is church, if you're living on past experience, or uh, if you've never had any, not even a flicker of desire, listen, you may need to actually get saved. You may need for the first time in your life, not just to pray or prayer, but to actually place your trust in Jesus dying on the cross for your sins and ask him to make your heart come alive. I want to encourage you, don't don't leave here today without doing business with God. If your heart's never beat fast for him, I want to encourage you to get saved today. Maybe that's not you. Maybe, Maybe it's not that you've never had any desire. You just have this flicker of desire. Can I just encourage you? He doesn't need you to be strong. He's strong. He just wants you to trust him and ask him to fan that flicker into a bonfire in your heart. Man, if if all you got is this one little burning ember, would you just ask him to actually cause that thing to burn in you for love for Jesus? Some of you, you, you have desire, and you, know, you have desire, and you've been growing more and more. Here's what I want you to do in your seat I want you to, to keep straining and longing, pursuing, and ask Him to keep causing your heart to burn more and more and more for Jesus. The thing that God did was. Um, The thing they did in your heart was this moment that you've realized, man, you have, you've gone shallow. You like Jesus for what he gives, but you don't like it when it costs you something. And listen, trials are going to come and your faith is going to die. Would you ask him to remove the stony soil out of your heart? And maybe for you, the issue is, man, you're just wrapped up in riches and deceit, like the cares of the world, all the things that are weighing you down, and you can't even breathe to think of adding Jesus to the mix of that feels impossible would you ask him to help you weed your life of all those things that would take you away from Jesus would you ask him to give you a heart that burns for him more than anything else heavenly father God, God we come to you God we just admit our hearts are fickle You're stronger than our hearts. For some of us, we have good pasts, and some of us, we have bad pasts. But, God, your gospel is stronger than our past. And we don't want past experience with you only. We want present and future experience with you, God. God, we want to be a people that long for you and hunger for you and chase after you. So, God, I'm praying that you would do a work in our hearts. God, that we would not be nominal, that we would not be apathetic, that we would not be people that coast, but we would be people that strain and press on with every fiber of our being for knowing you. God, make us burn for you. And I pray it all in Jesus' name.